Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Libby Larson is one of America's most performed living composers. Her catalog of some 500 compositions spans every genre from vocal to chamber music to massive orchestral and operatic works. Including a Grammy-winning album in 1993, she has over 50 recordings to her credit. She continues to be in demand for commissions and premieres by artists worldwide. She's the founder of the Minnesota Composers Forum, now the American Composers Forum, and has held residencies with the Minnesota Orchestra, the Charlotte Symphony, and the Colorado Symphony. Libby, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, John. I'm really looking forward to this. So I always like to, at the beginning, do a little bit of background. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this because we have lots to talk about with your music and your and your visit to our university coming up soon. We're really excited about that. Uh, but I, I was reading some of your writings and, and things that you have on your website, and there was this story that you told about your earliest musical experience, and it, it really captured my imagination because in the story you were three years old. Well, my son is three years old, so I'm, I'm imagining him uh, you know, having these earliest memories about this time. But uh, your story was that you were standing at the piano. I think you said your eyes were level with the keyboard. And I think you said you were even gnawing on the piano. And maybe it was your sister that was playing. And you said something to the effect of like your whole head, your whole body was vibrating with the sound of the piano. What a, what a beautiful idea for a, like a, a first memory of music. Could you, could you talk a little bit about how you decided to become a composer? Sure, I, I, I'd love to. That uh, experience at the piano and really experiences every day um, uh, of my life um, are, are um, kind of the way that I exist in the world. Um, and what I mean by that is um, many people, when they walk into a room, um, they look around the room and see where they are and situate themselves, uh, maybe smell the smells, notice the colors, uh, uh, and, and feel comfortable uh, that they're safe and secure. Uh, when I walk into a room, the first thing I notice is sound. Um, I just hear my way uh, into the space. Um, every sound that's in the room, uh, I, I can hear and I organize in my mind uh, uh, for the very same reason, so that I know that I, um, I'm safe and I'm secure. Um, uh, since this is my first way of, of uh, starting the day or it, being in the world, um, I learned at a very young age that that um, that I could work with that, um, and that I could make that into pieces of music, or um, not necessarily what you would call music, but I could ma- I could make a shape, an order of, of the sound all around, uh, and um, and make and make it my own. Um, what I didn't know at the time is that's exactly what composing is. Uh, that in fact. Uh, we composers work with pitches and and rhythms and instruments uh, uh, in order to make shapes of sound uh, that we then um, offer to you, the listener, uh, as a piece of music. Um, so I really began organizing sound in my mind as my as my most comfortable way of being in the world uh, 
from the time I was a tiny child. And in grade school, I got into trouble quite a bit. I was the kid who was always tapping on the desk or <laughs> percussing, as it were. You know? I know all about that. That's That was me, well, too. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, so I, I knew by about fifth grade that the, if I walked into a schoolroom, uh, in those days, we had, you know, rows of desks nailed down to the floor. I just automatically go to the back of the room and sit in the corner by the window <laughs> <laughs> where I could just be myself and not bother uh, uh, people who, who weren't percussing their way through yeah, life. That's great. Um, that's great. Yeah. So, you know, it really wasn't until um, college at the University of Minnesota uh, when I um, began to understand that not everybody uh, in the world has music in their head um, all the time. Uh, not even my friends who were studying to be, uh, say, singers or, or um, any kind of performer, not, didn't really 24-7 have, have music, not only have music in their head, but music that was their own music. Uh, and uh, so realizing that and taking a few classes, music theory and, and analysis, which I just loved, I just ate up those classes, and noticed that many of my friends actually weren't eating up those classes. I, um, I, uh, I, it dawned on me that this thing that I'd been doing just every day since I was uh, very, very young um, was called composing. Uh, and I thought, well, I, I, I wish I could sing better than I do because I really wanted to be a coloratura soprano and sing at the Met when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> I was heartbroken when I did <laughs> for a while. <laughs> yeah, but then I, I realized that it, that in fact this 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 thing that I was doing in my spare time, uh, uh, making pieces of music, um, had value in the world, uh, and that uh, that I could study it uh, and I could learn uh, uh, how to become what our definition of a composer. Uh, is yeah. So I just um, it was about it was about well mid sophomore year in college when I heartbroken Libby <laughs> decided decided that I probably wasn't going to sing at the Met, but I could write songs for singers who sang at the Met, you know. And and then I switched over and started making pieces for performers, and have been doing that ever since. Would you say that that vocal music and that, that was kind of the thing that inspired you early on, the voice and music for the voice? Who were some uh, composers that that captured your imagination in those early years? Who were who were your influences? Good question. You know, um, th- um, I'll I'll just go back and pick up a thread that um, while I while I studied voice and sang all my life, I also studied piano at the same time. So um, I was quite proficient uh, instrumentally when I got to college, too. So melding the two of them into composition, I, um, my, my very first real heroes were the Russian composers, uh, Prokofiev, uh, Stravinsky, really the Russian modernists, who were more, more about instrumental music than vocal music. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and also um, some of the early orchestral composers earlier, like, um, uh, well, French in particular, uh, Berlioz, uh, the Italian Rospighi, uh, colorists, I guess, were just dazzled my mind and my heart. And I just, ooh, I just loved to listen how, to how they made the air sound with their instruments. Yeah. Um, now you, but you also mentioned singing, which is absolutely true. That a, th- a through line for for my ear um, and for the music that I write has always been voice. I think it's because I learned to read and write Gregorian chant um, in first grade, along with everybody else in my class, hmm. um, and we little five and six year olds would. Sing the Mass of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and you just kind of heighten our voices in in very natural um, kind of singing. So um, singing just became a, well, it became a part of all of us in that school, but it, it just became a part of a part of me. So I, I didn't I didn't think to study it, um, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. I I just sing, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That that's an interesting thing, you know. I, it sort of makes me think of, um, and this is sort of left field of your some of your influences. But you know, Harry Parch wrote very yeah. eloquently about the corporeality and the the human voice and the importance of that to our sort of just humanity and art making in general. That the voice yeah. is so uh, central and crucial to to that and being in touch with that. That I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I can I can see how that would uh, be a through line you know, yeah. in your work. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Well, um, so <clears throat> what was your early career like? You you were at the University of Minna, uh, Minnesota in Minneapolis. Yes. You grew up there in Minneapolis. What what was the uh, earliest uh, commissions or, or professional work that you got as a composer that sort of launched you onto your career? Oh, lo, these many years ago, but it's really lovely to, to revisit uh, my early, uh, really early 20s. I, I was lucky because I'd been composing, you know, for years and years and years without any self-consciousness, just composing. Right. So a couple of the first commissions that I got, you know, uh, where somebody said, we will pay you some money if you will write us a piece. It came from mentors who are still very dear friends. Two that that really um, moved me out of the academy and onto the streets, uh, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> One was a commission from the Unitarian Society, which um, uh, uh, has a still has and had then and still has a marvelous music program with a full orchestra and a full chorus, um, uh, and a conductor by the name of Tom Nee was the music director there, and he asked uh, asked me if I would write uh, a cantata uh, for the Unitarian Society, uh, and um, which I, uh, I just said, well, certainly, I'd, I'd love to do that. Uh, and uh, so, so um, I wrote a cantata, uh, uh, it's called Lacrimosa Criste, uh, and, um, and learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a big lesson. I wrote a completely... Uh, a uh, uh, 12-tone uh, gestalt piece, oh, wow. um, complete with Sprechstimme uh, and, uh, uh, and, 
And we struggled and we put that piece on, you, you know, for, uh, for the public. And I learned that, um, that music is not a universal language, that music is universal, but the systems that composers elect to make their pieces uh, are not universal. They're systems of organization of pitch and, and rhythm and shape and form. You know, and that were I to want to communicate what it's like to be alive to an educated, um, dedicated, listening public, uh, which we can elaborate more on. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But were I to do that, I needed to be very rigorous in understanding how the the language, the languages available to make pieces of music connected uh, with, with, with the audience. Uh, so that was the only 12-tone piece I ever wrote in, you know, outside of the academy, um, although I do use 12-tone uh, quite often, but not as a rigor, more as a technique. So that was what, one, and that was straight out of my, uh, it, right off my doctorate. The other one, um, right off my doctorate, came from another, through another mentor of mine, a fellow by the name of Vern Sutton, who's a very dear friend. We're celebrating his 80th birthday in just in a week. But uh, Vern uh, was one of the uh, major performers on a very, um, on a brand new sh uh, uh, radio show that was called The Prairie Home Companion. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Garrison Keillor and Vern and Philip Brunel, and they, they were sort of the nucleus of the original uh, show and the Powder Milk Biscuit Band. Hmm. Uh, they were going to, to um, uh, go national. It was going to be their first national broadcast. And Vern, uh, at the request of Garrison, I think I'm sure it was Vern who, who, uh, who made this happen, but um, asked if I would be able to compose a work for the Powder Milk Biscuit Band um, and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra um, to premiere on that show. And the show was in six weeks. Um, and I said, why, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 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 and, and promptly went to work staying up all night. Right, for, right. The most we, important lesson there, always say yes, right? <laughs> always, say, always say yes, but boy, you better have the technique to back up, back up the yes. <laughs> right, right. Also good health and stamina. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> So I composed a concerto grosso uh, 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 for them, uh, and um, that was broadcast nationally. But those two pieces, uh, you know, they're so different, and, um, and and both of them large form architectural pieces. Um, I uh, I at that point uh, thought if I if if I'm going to pursue this life, uh, um, it's the life of an architect. Uh, that I'm pursuing, only it's um, it's sonic architecture. That makes sense to you? Yeah, of course. Uh, and it's not what I thought it was when I got my doctorate. Hmm. Not at all. Hmm. No. At the time, I thought, how grateful I am for the you know the years of study, the mentors, the great teachers, you know, at, who were who really you know held my feet to the fire, so that. Uh, uh, once I elected to not join a faculty, which was a conscious decision on my part, mm -hmm. you know, that I I had I had what I needed to um, to compose in public. Yeah, well, let, let's unpack that a little bit because that's sort of an interesting 
thing. I mean, we we all all of us musicians who work with composers or are composers ourselves. I mean, there's <clears throat> you know there's uh, composers who are in the academy that 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 are invested in education and and the whole research uh, side of this practice. But then there are plenty of composers out there who may not even make their living from their composing, mm-hmm. uh, or or if they do, I mean, there's various levels, right? We could we could agree that there yeah. are various levels of and everything in between. But the one the one thing that's sort of interesting is, um, and we we'll get to this at the end. But that idea of living and sustaining the creative practice and how one does that, whether you're doing that in the academy or whether you're doing that, um, you know, out out there on your own. And and certainly, I've worked with plenty of composers who are not in the academy and and there is kind of a different I don't know how to explain it but I think the through line with all of that stuff is the relationships that are that are created regardless of uh, whether you're you're a professor or or out of the academy or whatever it is but to me what's been most meaningful in my musical life has have been the relationships that I've been able to create with with composers yeah and and I wonder how that plays a part from someone who's not in the academy and doesn't have you know um, that the same kind of agenda that that maybe an academic composer would have. Mm-hmm. Um, how those relationships have shaped the kind of work that you do and the kind of people that you collaborate with. My um, joy, I have a lot of joy in the in the work that I do. Uh, and I feel exceedingly fortunate. The relationships uh, really are the basis, you know, of the joy in the in the work. Um, I, I um, uh, try my hardest um, to work with performers who I can meet at the what I call the crossroads of respect, that I so respect um, their level, of, the way they approach their art. How they make their art, you know uh, what what they're about, why they've chosen to live their life, you know, uh, through performing uh, uh, music. Um, uh, that um, I I have been fortunate over the years, but I also uh, uh, work very hard at this to to um, to gather around and make relationships um, with with performers who are uh, well as passionate as I am about music. Mm-hmm. And as um, centered as I hope that I am about why we make music, uh, and are as um, I don't know respectful and rigorous about what it actually takes to do the very best job, you know, possible at making that particular moment of music yeah. um, that um, uh, you know come come to life. Uh, those are the kinds of relationships that I I I foster and, and I value and I'm loyal to. Yeah. Uh, you know, at all stages, uh, you know, of development. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I could have these kinds of friendships or relationships um, in this way outside of the discipline of music. Mm-hmm. No, I have running buddies. I'm a long distance runner and we have very close friendships with runners, but it's just not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just such a leap of faith for me to put a B flat, you know, on a piece of paper, you know, yeah. and, and for Tony Boutet to sing that B flat, <laughs> right? You know, right. Uh, yeah. And and for that particular B flat sung in that particular way to actually move somebody uh, emotionally, uh, is it's astounding. It's it's magic. 
It's yeah. like spiritual magic yeah. and nothing like it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you mentioned Tony Boutte, our, our um, colleague here at Sam Houston, and I, I have earmarked a couple of uh, things to talk about the songs that, that he'll be singing, so a new uh, set of pieces, and we'll definitely yeah. want to definitely wanna touch on that. But I have one more thing before we get to the, the music, which is um, another thing that I sort of noted from your uh, your writings and and things that I've read is that you you speak very eloquently about being a woman in the field of composition and as as a college professor you know I have charged I'm charged with mentoring a number of uh, very talented young women and have mm-hmm. done so over the years and so I always try to be aware of, of that and representing female composers on my programs and exposing students to how to find and champion composers uh, you had and so you had some beautiful uh writing about that i wonder if you could just say a few words uh, or maybe advice for young women composers or musicians who who might be listening to the podcast well um i I'll, i'd be happy to try i didn't know that existing in a female body would would have any bearing on how people might hear the music that i wrote I just, as I said, you know, I've just always written music. Right. Uh, uh, and, and it really was in, when I was in graduate school that it was made clear to me that I was not in the paragraph, I was in the margin. Hmm. Because, because um, I live in a female body. And at that point, this was in the 70s, so, you know, so much water has passed <laughs> no, uh, since then. But at the time, I just, I just thought, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. My joy is my joy. Yeah. Uh, my gift is, is my gift. I'm going to have this gift, and no one's going to take it away from me until I leave my body. You know? yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and um, so um, I, 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 at the time, I thought, there's this strange thing going on to try to define my joy and the fruits of my brain as other you know, mm-hmm. uh, when, when in fact it's not other, you know, it yeah. sound is, it is sound, sound is sound is sound. Right. So, um, so, um, at, at the time I thought, well, I can, I can buy into this and I can be angry, you, you know, or, and I can, I can pit myself against somebody else's idea of the odds, you know, or I can just make music, you know, yeah, um, and, and work with, performers who I respect and and just bring my joy you know to the to the table and say hey let's do it you know um uh and and just stay centered and um and so I think for the for for young you know for young women or women who are just new to the field of composition you know and maybe feeling some of this monastic um holdover because it is a monastic art form Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which then defines the gender patterns, you know, um, um, that, that feeling that that kind of monastic, you know, you are other you know, um, is not a fruitful um, uh, pairing for the muse. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's just just ignore it. Walk, walk up to it. Uh, face it. Be graceful. Be strong. Write great music uh, and um, and just don't buy into it. Yeah. 
Great. Um, well, this might be a good place to pivot and <clears throat> now give a little plug for the 56th, what is going to be the 56th annual Contemporary Music Festival at Sam Houston State, where, where I teach and, and where you'll be our composer in residence. And so it'd be great to talk about the uh, a couple of things related to that. You mentioned uh, Tony Boutte, our, our wonderful uh, new colleague here at Sam Houston, and uh, we're, we're just really thrilled that he's here with us and really enjoying his work, and, and, and you share a great connection with him. So I thought yeah. it might be fun to talk about the, uh, the songs. Uh, that you wrote for him, the songs from the Intergalactic Nightclub. He, he sent me the uh, poetry, uh, the texts, and uh, and some notes on, on it. And uh, I think your program said something to the effect of an imagined volume of popular songs from the future, <laughs> which which seems like a really terrific idea. So would you want to talk about uh, these songs? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I The word poetry just came into my brain and said, you must say me, poetry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, read. I'm an avid reader of poetry, uh, and poets are my heroes. And I and and so uh, over the years, I've been uh, uh, I've been collecting poems that are um, that are surreal and that deal with time, millennia, passage of time, uh, crossing generations, in a Star Wars, uh, Star Trek kind of space kind of way. Um, uh, uh, there's a uh, a wonderful uh, body of poetry that you would call um, surrealistic space poetry, mm-hmm. although it doesn't talk about rocket ships and, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it's just, you know, um, it's just, it just deals with time and, and being in almost a science fiction uh, way. So years ago, uh, in the early 90s, I wrote one song on a poem uh, by Tom McGrath called Jazz from the Intergalactic Nightclub. And um, and I and I love that song uh, and um, it's performed now and again, but it doesn't get programmed much because it's hard to program anything with <laughs> with the poem. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, uh, it's the transmogrification of time and what is midnight and what is absolute midnight, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it, and it's performed in uh, at, um, as uh, uh, in almost a cabaret nightclub uh, style. So. Um, when Tony and I started talking about this residency, Tony said, would you be interested in, in writing a song for me? And of course, the answer is yes, of course, Tony, of course. <laughs> and so um, uh, uh, we started to talk about different texts, but then this is how it happens in my discontinuous brain. Um, I, I, I just said to myself, ah, it's time that the intergalactic nightclub be born. Ah. <laughs> that, that, in fact, um, it, it exists in my mind, this, this nightclub. Uh, uh, and um, and uh, there's a whole repertoire just waiting to fill it. Uh, and so I, I, I asked Tony, would, would he be interested in my writing a couple of songs to go with uh, the jazz at the intergalactic nightclub? And um, Tony, uh, being a dear friend, and we worked many times together, said, well, send me the songs. (laughs) 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 Which is a wise answer. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I um, uh, 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 pulled two poems uh, that I had been thinking about. Um, One is by poet Bill Holm. 
and it is called Wolf Song in Los Angeles. Um, and it's really a poem about extinction uh, and um, things that are there that, um, that were extinct 15 million years ago but are still with us. So Wolf Song in Los Angeles, a very hip poem about um, the, the um, wolves howling on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. And I've written Wolf Howling into the song. So Yeah, he mentioned that. I, I was very interested in that. I, I um, As a percussionist, one of the things that I do is a, a repertoire of speaking percussion pieces. So I'm always, oh. I, I very often collaborate with poets and, and set spoken texts with yeah. with percussion. And so I was very intrigued by this wolf poem. And it, it, there's an image in the poem about... 404 wolf skulls out of the right. La Brea tar pits. And I right. just imagining this sort of imagery and then the wolf howling and what an evocative kind of idea that that is. It, re it really is. It's, it's an extraordinary poem by an extraordinary poet. You know, that, um, that again, I, when I first read the poem, I thought, well, I can write this song, but there's, what are you going <laughs> to, how can you program this on, a, on an art form recital? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It just doesn't go with Aaron Copeland, or <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, so we, so I added Wolf Song to the Galactic Nightclub uh, songs, yeah. and then this very cool poem by um, the late Bob Kaufman, which is called Battle Report, and again, it's a it's a very hip, very surrealistic poem about um, the time when jazz itself. Um, uh, under under cover of night, sneaks into the city, you know, <laughs> and um, and takes it over. It's sort of birth of jazz in the city. So we added battle report um, uh, to it, so that we have a group of three songs from the intergalactic night club. And Tony um, uh, now becomes the very first crooner <laughs> <laughs> from outer space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't know that yet. We just said that between you and I. But now, now we all know. <laughs> <laughs> now it's out. The word's out. <laughs> well, well, I'm so looking forward to to hearing uh, these songs and and all of your music on our on our program. And and how? So I'm curious. How did you uh, get started working with uh, with Tony? Oh, uh, it, it, through a mutual friend, um, our friend Alan Johnson who's the director of the Frost Institute, the uh, Frost Opera Theater okay. uh, at Miami University, where Tony was uh, right. teaching before, right. before he came to Sam Houston. So um, Alan introduced me to Tony through uh, Tony's working on an, a new opera uh, for the John Duffy Institute, um, which is uh, an institute that I'm the artistic director and we develop new operas. Uh, not my operas, but new operas by American composers. And Tony, very gamely, has sung in, in many of the workshops for those operas. So that's how I, we got to know each other and really hit it off. He's just so wonderful. You're so lucky that he's now with you. Yeah, uh, we, and, we really are. And, and we connected right away because we share an interest in, in new music and... Uh... 
and he's on our, you know, he's helping us to curate and plan our contemporary music festivals now. And it's, it's really great to have him on board. And we, we connected right away, uh, over some John Cage, uh, songs and, uh, we did, we still haven't got to play those. So Tony, if you're listening, I'm, I'm always ready to do that. But, uh, um, we, we connected over shared interest in that and, uh, just been, been thrilled to have him on our faculty and to hear him sing. And it's just really been, been great. So I'm, I'm glad that this is all working out and we're, we're super excited to have you here and uh, for you guys to get to work together again. So um, keeping with our sort of plugging of the Contemporary Festival, I thought it might yeah. be also fun to do something, uh, talk about the piece that uh, my percussion ensemble is doing, uh, because I've, I'm quite familiar with that piece, and, and it would be fun to sort of uh, talk about that, and that's the piece DDT, ah, your, DDT. your <laughs> percussion piece. Yeah. So could you could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I, I, I would love to. Uh, that piece was commissioned by Nexus, you know, our very well-known uh, percussion ensemble right. um, uh, uh, quartet. DDT um, uh, is an environmental piece. Um, I care very, very, very deeply about uh, uh, how we are stewarding uh, our natural resources. When I was composing DDT, I was in a bit of a kerfuffle. I'll just say it, <laughs> right? um, and it had to do with um, oil drilling, uh, which I hesitate to say on a podcast in Texas. But um, I uh, I was really irritated with Sarah Palin uh, at the time. I think you'll have to get in line. <laughs> <laughs> and let's not even talk about what's going on currently, but uh, continue, please. <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, it's, it's all of, of in the same basket, shall we say? Indeed. <laughs> yeah. And I um, I decided um, that it, it would be interesting to make a piece in, in Morse code you know, that that um, contained Morse code, Morse code for the words air and earth uh, for the uh, the elements and also for, for Sarah Palin's Drill Baby Drill. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so, so DDT is a, um, it, uh, it, uh, it's a little subversive, but not really. I'm not saying, I'm not offering any opinions. I'm just, you know, saying the words, right. spelling out the words in rhythm, both augmented rhythm and dim- diminutive rhythm, and, uh, and turning it into a kind of a, a, a Morse code mm, portrait um, of, of the Earth's elements. Um, with an embedded phrase, a political phrase, um, that can act as a reminder that uh, we we are here as stewards of the earth, even though some of us try to convince ourselves that the earth is ours, we have dominion over nature, and, and have created a construct of ownership that, that may not be the most healthy thing for the environment that hosts us. It's a really clever piece, and one of the things that I remarked on and that I visited with the students here and there about is because I'm I also do some uh, from time to time 
perform and or make pieces that have a socio-political message of some kind. And, and always the challenge with those kinds of pieces is to, it's very clear that I as an individual and you have as, as an individual have a, a, a stance on the issue. Yes. But to be able to make a piece that's about the issue that can be, um, that can highlight something, but that can also be abstract enough that's not too on the nose. And and that's the challenge. There's a line there, you know, um, finding that line. And this, and I think your piece is, is perfect in that regard that, that it doesn't, it's not preachy. It doesn't, you know, espouse a certain kind of position, but it is a statement and one can come away from it with their own, you know, um, conclusions from that. And um, yeah. it definitely comes from a, a position, but but it's not didactic, I guess, is the way that I'm trying to say it. And so that's always the challenge for me. And I have students that will want to, they'll see me do some kind of yeah. piece. I, I, re I recently wrote a piece about truth and one of the oh. movements was called Truth is a Knife, and it was from this beautiful essay that I uh, had read by um, this, um, he's a photographer, Herbert Howe, but anyway. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the, the analogy, it just kind of spun out this analogy about how truth is a knife. Well, it, it doesn't really mention our current socio-political landscape. It's not about right. that, but it's about truth, and it speaks to our sort of time. And, and so, anyway, so students will come in, and they'll want to make, they'll see that piece, or they'll see your piece, DDT, and they'll think, oh, I want to do a piece about whatever it is, the issue that they're, they find really important. And, yeah. and inevitably, it's finding that finesse and that line of how can you make a piece that's about the issue without being too, you know, beating the audience over the head. Could you, you talk know, about your concept, your approach to that kind of idea? Yeah, and I, I almost wish we could just have a conversation here, but you, you and I, because uh, it, it's hard, isn't it, uh, John? Yeah. yeah. To to make the statement, but make it. Um, in, uh, in a way that doesn't tie itself to uh, present politics yeah. or trends or, you know, uh, it date itself. And yeah. the, the minute it becomes preach, at least for me, the minute I feel like preaching is the minute I know I better run away from the idea yeah. and try to find another way around it. So um, I, I don't know about how you approach this, but I imagine we we're, we have similar approaches is to kind of, to think deeply about the issue, like truth, you know, deeply about the issue uh, or uh, or in my case, um, the world, the environment that hosts us mm -hmm. as human beings, you know, to tr to understand um, for me, I try to understand. All right. I'm mad at Sarah Palin. No. Okay. That that's at least getting me, you know, to move to 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 want to act and make a piece. Yeah. But it's not. It, but that's not the point of the piece. You know. Right. The, it, you know, and not only is it not the point of the piece. If I make that the point of the piece, the piece is impotent the minute I'm done with it. Yep. Because I've circumscribed so closely uh, the the anger, you know, that I'm that I'm feeling with on the surface. With the environment, I, uh, you know, I, I, I guess you, I'm sure you do this too. You try to find a way to move into the abstract part of a person's soul, that abstract part of all of us that says, "Yeah, truth." You know. Yeah. Well, and truth. I guess, and I guess in this in this particular instance, I mean, it's it's so, it's a little bit hard to think generally about it. We we I think at least for me, I have to think kind of specifically about a particular piece and how I solve the problem of. Yeah. 
not being too didactic or forceful or whatever the word is I can't find exactly right at the moment. But getting back to your DDT piece, I, I wanted to know the connection between uh, the piece and you, cause you mentioned in the program notes about silent spring, that that was a very influential. And I remember reading that book as well. What was your connection with that book? How does that relate to the piece? Yes. Um, thanks for asking that. Um, I originally with DDT, I originally wanted to, um, lift a passages from silent spring, um, and then, uh, uh turn them into Morse code. Uh, and uh, and that the piece would really be silent spring only in Morse code and percussive. Um, and um, uh, I couldn't get the permission to do it from from the lawyers that be. Uh-huh. Uh, and I thought, well, that's isn't that part of the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you'd really have to know Morse code really well to. <laughs> You know, so I was, I I mean, I'm sure I could have done, well, I shouldn't say this in public, but I probably could have gotten away with it if I hadn't actually asked for permission. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Ask for forgiveness (laughs) rather than permission. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, uh, uh, but um, uh, my husband's a lawyer and my daughter's a lawyer and I live with lawyers, so I'm, you know. (laughs) You're obligated. (laughs) I step lightly. (laughs) So, um, so I thought, well, what's the next best thing I can do, you know? Uh, and I, uh, 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 and and that that's I went immediately to well, you know, the the elements, uh, our natural elements, fire and earth and air and water, H two O, and then um, uh, and then the drill, baby drill, uh, and the use of dissonance to create uh, cognitive dissonance. Um, which I'm not sure I did quite as successfully as I uh, could um, in DDT. It, it's inspired by by Silent Spring, which um, which really, but it's not the literal Silent Spring. Yeah, right. If that makes sense. In, in the spirit yeah. of that book, though, was with you as you were um, thinking of it and, and composing. Yeah all, around, all, yeah, all around. It's sort of the monkey and scream, mm. you know, you know yeah. that uh, in her genius, um, you know, was so able to articulate in, in, in factual, emotional ways, yeah. you know, that, that made a difference. So, um, so that's the connection. Okay. Okay. Well, and, like there, the, and, and the use of the drill, drill, baby drill, there is actually a, the sound of a drill in the piece. Yeah. So you really drive, <laughs> drive that, that one home <laughs> in the end. <laughs> Just in case you didn't get the Morse code. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. It's a it's a really delightful piece. Very clever, and uh, I thought the percussion writing is is really interesting and lots Thank of you. colors and textures. And something you said earlier that that re- now resonates even more is the sort of you mentioned being kind of thinking of yourself as an architect. And and mm-hmm. the the thing that I noted about the piece is the formal structure of the piece is is so very clear. You have these different worlds that are created: the the bird, the insect, the human. Right the drill, you know, and, and all of these segments that are, um, even if you didn't, you know, not even looking at the score, it's, it's so clear that, that you're building a world out of that. Well, that's quite a compliment coming from you. I, I thank you. That's very kind. So we're, we're running up on our time together here. And, uh, I always like to 
close these conversations with a very simple question. It doesn't always have simple answers or easy answers, but I'll go ahead and, and close with this if you don't mind. Yeah. How does one live and sustain a creative life? Hmm. Well, infinite curiosity um, sustains me creatively. Um, discipline. Um, I'm so grateful that I am a musician because I know how to practice and I actually love to practice uh, just for the sake of getting better. You know? So so the, the discipline, of, I think, applied to, you know, a, a infinite curiosity, um, that that feeds the creative, you know, cr- creatively. But you asked how to sustain it. Uh, and um, I think uh, balance, I'm sure everybody says the word balance to you, you know, when we're talking about these issues. Yeah. Um, it, there was one point in my life when I understood why Mozart died young. Hmm. <laughs> because because the, my brain on fire creatively um, can easily burn up my body, easily. Yeah. I think a lot of us know what this is. I'm sure you do, and many of our students, and you know, just going to burn themselves right out of their bodies with their creativity. So the sustain part brings up the word balance is is to get away, you know, and put it away from time to you know, put it away on a regular basis. And just believe that the creativity is always there, and you can always access it, you know, and then balance it. Uh, with um, uh, you know, with something that uh, that that allows some kind of serenity, that then and, and um, health is is part of that balance, and um, stamina is part of that balance. I think that at least has sustained um, has at least sustained my life. The thing that I haven't mentioned, and of course we could talk for hours about this, is having family and people in your life, people that you love, people who love you, you know, people, people who, who are, who really are friends, really true friends, you know, um, uh, and can see you as you, you know, and see that creative fire, whatever it is as part of you, but not you, you know, it's, it's really, really, really important. I believe, uh, I, I think when my time comes to to, uh, leave the earth, that all of this energy that right now is part of the what I call my creativity, it's just going to go right back out there, you know, uh, uh, and find find a home in, in in another place. And if I take care of myself, then then I'm taking care of the creativity, and it'll sustain a, a life, you know. And um, and I never worry about income. I just visualize what I what I hope will be, and for some reason, it is. Well, that I couldn't think of a better way to close the show out, Livy. That that is a beautiful, a beautiful sentiment. Thank you so much for uh, your time, spending this time with me. I really enjoyed getting to chat with you, and uh, and really looking forward to having you in Texas soon. Well, thanks, John. It's re- it's really been a pleasure. I feel like we could probably talk, you know, every week. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. 
Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.